Hello and welcome to the Virtualization Security Podcast, episode number 151. Actually, a Virtualization and Cloud Security Podcast. Let's go there. Our panelist today is Eben Rodriguez, who's a Principal Cloud Solutions Architect at Spirit Communications. Welcome. Hello, Eben. hello. Spirant Communications? <laughs> Spirant, sorry. It's supposed to be an uh, Inspire Innovation. Aha. Uh-huh. And... Mike Foley, who's from the VMware Technical Marketing Team, where I think his focus is still security of the vSphere platform, unless it's changed. Welcome, Mike. Uh, Howdy, and it has not changed. I've got this gig for a while. (laughs) At least I hope so. And myself, Edward Halecki, a.k.a. TechSciWill, on the VMware Communities Forum, on Twitter, on Skype, on just about anywhere, including talk show. Look me up, find me if you want to talk to me. And I have several books out there. Go to Amazon. You can look them up by my last name, and you should be able to find them. Our special guest today is Ross Wynn, who has been using NSX. But before we get there, and welcome, Ross. Hello. I would like to start with some news. Today, vSphere 6 or vCloud Suite 6 was released and available for download, so the VMware servers are probably inundated. Oh, wow. Warm up your browsers. Actually, All right. They're actually not doing that bad. I just downloaded a whole bunch of stuff, without, no problem. And I've been downloading as well, and I've had no problems, so there you go. Go for it, guys. Um, but hey, I wanted to bring up... networking. Yep. Is that... As relation to this, is two notes is that the current version of VCNS will not work with vSphere 6. That should be coming out shortly, so pay attention to that. If you are using vCNS, upgrading right away may not be the right thing to do. And, and Mike, when is the hardening? Go on. Yes. And it, if I could, there is also a KB that everyone should be uh, referencing before they go ahead and upgrade to version 6. Uh, it is KB number dun, 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 21102293. That's KB21102293. And it's important information before upgrading to vSphere 6. And it covers what I just said about vCNS, but everybody a whole bunch of other stuff reading. as well. Yep. So the very first thing you do when you plan an upgrade is read all the documentation. I cannot stress that enough. I've known okay. a lot of people that have RTFM. It. How many people are going to go and upgrade their production environments right away, you know? I mean, let's, let's just uh, be clear. That's, Any small that's businesses, tr- that's possibly. That, that is true. Uh, however, um, and, and this is just my opinion, um, I'm seeing a huge interest in version 6 from a lot of customers. Uh, I get, I'm getting inundated with um, queries from the field, and uh, I think there's a lot of people that have a, a huge amount of interest, and I think it's probably going into a whole bunch of labs this afternoon. Yeah. And I, even for a lab, I would still seriously strongly still recommend you. Yeah, read all yeah, the documentation. If they're, if, they're doing, if they're doing a copy of their production environment in their lab environment and updating the, the copy, 
you really want to read that KB before you even start doing anything around upgrades. And also read all the documentation, check the HCLs, do all the standard stuff you normally do, or your availability will be compromised, and your security. So that's the news for today. Uh, I do have one question. Um, Mike, when will the hardening guide be available for SIX, now that it's available? Yep, the uh, the hardening guide will become available within one quarter after today, and uh, I'm hoping to have a beta release out uh, as soon as possible. Thank you, Mike. And then from the stuff that I've we've talked about on the podcast, it shouldn't change that much, should it? A little bit of changes. Um, so yeah, um, there. As I pointed out in a blog article about a, uh, three or four weeks ago, um, I am separating out all of the operational guidance from. Uh, so we'll call that operational guidance slash best practices sort of stuff. All of that is moving into the into the uh, the vSphere security documentation, and. What's left is uh, mostly programmatic type guidance. So what is this setting, what's the value, and what should it be set to? And um, that a, a rough look at it was it, it basically split almost down the middle. So what you'll find is the hardening guide is about half the size. And uh, I will be producing an Excel spreadsheet that takes the old stuff that moved to the documentation, and that will have the guideline and where it is in the documentation, a URL. Wonderful. So everybody look for that when it comes out. And if you have to wait for security reasons to upgrade the vSphere 6, you've got plenty of time to read the documentation. I would suggest it. Um, Ross, when you we, we, you and I had a conversation, and welcome to the podcast. I, I don't actually you know your position. Other than going to say, go on. Uh, yeah. I've been um, working with um, on a particular cloud project for the last couple of years as um, one of these type of consultants that come in and actually um, try and install these things for a, a major online company. And one of the um, elements that we've been looking at has been the NSX platform so that we can have a fully software-defined data center. And actually just bringing back onto the vSphere 6 side of things, um, best not to go near vSphere 6 for the moment if you're running NSX until uh, 6.1.3 is released. Um, you have to wait for that patch version for it to actually be compatible with uh, vSphere 6. Um, but uh, my entire knowledge of the product has been around the 6.1 release uh, the day it actually came out. Um, we installed it in what was officially a POC that turned into a pilot, which turned into production. And... Um, it's been our main interest in it has been around the performance um, characteristics of it, the throughput and latency, but also around micro segmentation um, and basically the possible replacement of physical uh, firewalls um, as a solution within the environment, or at least not needing to buy the really big um, Palo Alto firewalls or something similar and just be able to get away with smaller ones for other workloads. Yeah, and this conversation, the reason why I wanted Ross on so the listeners know is that on the VMTN Communities podcast last, was it last week? Last week. Um, Ross was on talking about NSX and how he is implementing it. But we got a really interesting side conversation after the podcast closed on the phone. So I wanted to continue that. And that is, is that 
NSX and microsegmentation is only one part of your security suite. You can't just use it as like the answer to everything or replace a lot of stuff. But will it replace everything? And that's really the question. The for me, um, the microsegmentation uh, helps with the simply with the firewall and performance and uh, the things. When you're looking at um, tapping into your network and having a look at NetFlow and other characteristics, it is something that can actually be used um, with pretty much a lot of the IDSs that are out there at the moment um, and IPS as well. It depends on your vendor. Uh, it depends what support they're doing with um, NSX. And it's a case of um, if you're using anything that's essentially Cisco-based, it won't work. Um, most of the major vendors out there are integrating their solutions from a security point of view with NSX. Um, and that can include just your basic antivirus as well, um, uh, with deep packet inspection, uh, data at rest, etc. Um, um, the main idea about NSX has always been around policy-based uh, firewalling or policy-based security. So in the case of a, a virtual machine that's being caught with a uh, with a, um, a virus, you can set a policy so that it will actually disconnect all the network immediately um, uh, so that you can actually go and examine it um, after the event. So it's, in reality, it, it's, a, it's a suite of tools um, all under the NSX banner. Um, it's what you do with it that really matters. Well, I mean, let's look at this suite a little bit more. There's actually an API called NetX that other third parties can plug into to get down to the nitty-gritty of the networking. And I know Palo Alto has and a bunch of load balancers have and a bunch of security tools have, actually. Um, and then you have the edge firewall that's still there. And then you have microsegmentation, which is a replacement for a vShield app which is a replacement for VM safe. So microsegmentation has been doing going, we've been having it, we had it for years. The question now is, is this any better? Is it more, is it less latent, more throughput? Does it have any dependencies on VMs or anything like that now? Um, from a latency perspective, um, it's absolutely negligible. Uh, when you're looking at your edge gateways, from ingress to egress, it's um, in the order of about 100 nanoseconds. Oh, sorry, 100 microseconds um, for transit through one of those edges. Um, when you're looking from the hypervisor base level, you pretty much don't see much um, degradation performance whatsoever. If you actually, we run a load of uh, performance tests as you know, to prove bandwidth capabilities from VM to VM across host and then inter host. And across host, we were getting pretty much almost uh, full 10 gigabit uh, connectivity between two VMs. Um, and within a host, we were getting, I think it was 18 gigabit uh, VM to VM. Um, and there weren't any really particularly special VMs, so, you know, two vCPU, four gig RAM, nothing special. But they were able to pump through uh, standard, um, I think it was Netcat tests at the time that we were doing, to actually just prove the actual throughput. Um, from a latency perspective, the uh, business I work for is essentially like a stock exchange in behavior. So it's massively latency sensitive. So anything that uh, means that getting from a, a virtual machine within the environment out to external load balancers, um, it's quite sensitive and you're talking about under one millisecond is acceptable. And frankly, it was 
able to do that without any issue whatsoever. It was very difficult to actually induce latency within the environment. Now, was that including using microsegmentation and the edge, or was it just one or the other? Both, or nothing? Absolutely, yeah. No, it was a full uh, situation where we had uh, DFW and we had uh, logical dispute routing as well involved um, for layer three networking, and then we had the edges set up in a ECMP mode um, so that we could actually have multiple edges in a north south configuration that would be able to take the bandwidth of, let's say, four or 5,000 VMs without any issue. Wonderful. And um, to, to be honest, from a performance point of view, we couldn't actually find anything to really say, oh, well, it was a little bit poor on something or other. Um, the negative in setting up an ECMP mode is those edges lose pretty much all their functionality. Um, they simply become routing devices. They lose all their firewall capabilities, VPN capabilities, um, uh, DACP, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they are simply routing devices. Now, that functionality may come back in the future, but it was a feature that came in 6.1. It was something that was needed to reduce failover time um, because the traditional VCNS edges, um, they would often have a failover time of anywhere between, you know, I think that you could tune down to about six seconds, but in reality, you're pretty much seeing a 15-second outage uh, when you're doing an HA pair. So that would have taken down certain applications where it's stacked. So we have to try and tune that to under five seconds. And when we use ECMP with OSCF, um, we were getting uh, failover times of uh, three to four seconds. Um, obviously, you lose um, a certain percentage of your traffic once one of those edges goes down, um, while the traffic starts rerouting across one of the other edges. Um, but you have to take that on the chin, and you have to make sure you have your environment um, scaled out uh, sufficiently that you don't have any particular um, individual apps in this stack, that you can have them in low balance groups. So if you lose traffic to one, it's not the end of the world. And pretty much most of the applications will be in that type of uh, scenario. Well, since they're in ECMP mode, then micro-segmentation really comes into the fore there. Absolutely. It, it becomes almost uh, an absolute requirement. Um, one of the other things that we were looking at was introducing how do you get your native environment and bring that into your um, well your micro segmentated uh, virtual environment. So you know if you've got a legacy environment of Hyper-V or Zen or KVM or anything else like that, how do you bring that in safely? And if you don't have firewalls on the edges, you do have a, a challenge um, because. At best, you've got DFW protecting the VMs at source, so they won't accept packets, so they won't send packets outbound. But that's only security on one side and not on the other side. Um, so that's still a challenge that we're trying to look at. Um, that's where stuff like uh, maybe a baby Palo Alto, and I'm not saying that we're um, looking at a particular vendor, but I know that integrates with MSX and actually does um, carry over the security group policies onto the actual Palo Altos as well. So you can actually orchestrate the firewall side things as well as the virtual side. Yes, they do that, and there's a few others that do it as well. But why not look at something like a Lumio or Cloud Passage that basically control the firewalls and routing from inside the VM and ignore the layering underneath? Um, get, uh, to be honest, we're still in the work in progress. Hey, we're going to actually get the major environment connecting in to the NSX environment. Um, for the moment, it's all very simple applications that just need low balance 
stuff, about 5% of our estate will be east-west traffic. Um, so we don't really have any of that challenge at the moment to actually deal with. We, we can onboard into the NSX environment, you know, the majority of the applications we need and not have to worry about touching the original native environment. And so we haven't had to look at dealing with that security headache. Um, the one thing it does do, though, is the micro-segmentation, it just means from policy point of view, we would spin up boxes routinely um, and by host name, even alone, it will just automatically go into the right policy, um, which in itself can be a bit of a, a security risk. So if someone jumps onto a box, they see it's a particular host name, um, which means it's production or something like that or development. All they have to do is do a host name command, change the name, and then suddenly it's got a new firewall policy. So you need to almost look at creating some type of bubble lock that not only is the, the host name that's spun up, but also maybe the VM name that's in vCenter or a tag that you apply to it, or it has to be on a particular network wire or something similar like that. You can do and or type logic for your policy based, or your, for your dynamic security groups um, for your policy based firewall. Well, this is where tags come in really handy. And unfortunately, you know, if I'm using a bunch of different tools in the past and already use tags, there's no common format for tags. So what ends up happening is, say I'm using a high trust, which I may still be using in this environment, it has its tagging mechanism. Mapping that to what's in NSX is, could be done, I imagine. You could set policy using any tag, I imagine. But you've got to now coordinate tag mechanisms and naming conventions between products. Yeah. So you, you essentially have to look at, in our case, we looked at host name. Um, it was a very straightforward uh, decision to do it that way. That, you know, part of the host name tells you what phase of development or production it's in. The next uh, the name will tell you what the application is. Um, and then you have some type of, um, you know, counter for, the actual server name or whatever it may be. So it was, it was a logical regex that would actually place it into the right, you know, part of a three-tier, five-tier architecture and put it into the right production or private particular development phase may be. Um, and it was pretty much simple. The idea was that the developers now can just spin up their application without the stress of having to go and log a ticket with networks to put it into a particular firewall object group that based on policy group or policy naming conventions, it will actually go and put it into the right uh, network. Um, one of the things you'll notice if you actually do deploy um, DFW is by default, it's allow all. Um, and so one of the first things you have to do is change that down to deny because, you know, uh, it, well, obviously you need to secure it on your platform. Um, well, I wouldn't do that first. So you need... DFW is a distributed firewall for those who don't yeah. know. And one of the first rules you want to do is allow something that allows you to communicate with those VMs while you're actually working on things and then deny all. So well, I'm looking I at tend the, to put my the, allow rules in before I put my deny rules in because as soon as I say deny all, there is no access. Yeah, the, right. Where I'm coming from is I'm doing in the green field. Um, because it wasn't a native uh, VMware state to begin with, uh, we were able to build this up as a side-by-side -side implementation um, with ah. no VMs to begin with. So it was a, a fairly straightforward thing. Yes, I would be rather crazy to do that in a, an environment which has hundreds of thousands of VMs. Um, but 
this is a Greenfield situation where we could actually build it up side by side, by side or not quite Greenfield, but we could build up side by side and get, uh, nat- uh, beside native, and the only thing you're sharing is your load balancer. Um, so oh, you actually build up. Well, I got another question about micro-segmentation and VMSafe and VShield app. Traditional security tools like NAT and things like that were just not capable. Has that changed, or you still need an edge to do that? No, nope. um, it's done on the VNIC level, so it's in the kernel. So when you create all your firewall rules and all the rest, and you could have hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of these rules. I think it scales up to about hundred thousand rules. Only the firewall rules that apply to that particular VM are put against that VM as part of the container um, within the uh, SX host. So every time a packet leaves in the SX host, it's interrogated against maybe only 20 firewall rules. Um, it's actually checked at the NIC level. So the packet never makes it out of the server or out onto any wire whatsoever if it violates one of the firewall rules. Um, yeah, but how do you so, do that in that situation when you actually have to worry about destination NAT as well as source NAT? Um, oh, from a NATing point of view, I wouldn't have used any NATing whatsoever. And I have a, we're quite lucky to be able to have a slash eight network um, internally. Um, we literally have everything just run um, within the environment that you can access directly from uh, every machine. So you're firewalling off environments on a corporate level. And so that's, you know, users can't access production because of a firewalling rule, but we now no longer need to have that big Cisco ASA or Palo Alto or something like that controlling those centralized rules. It's actually done directly on the end uh, virtual machines or on some... Yeah, but if you, uh, I mean, most com- most people slightly smaller that can't get a slash out, yeah. you need to um, worry about smaller networks who people are using 10 and 192 and the 172 addresses, they want to use that. How are they going to implement that with NSX, or are they going to have to rethink everything and put it all on using public IPs, which they may not have? Yeah, no, no. When I say slash A, I'm talking about a 10 dot network. Um, But, yeah, from that point... Well, anybody can have a 10 10 slash A. I mean, anybody can have a 10 slash A, but when you come in from the outside... Internally, routing is all you need between all that. And that is great, but if you're talking about coming from the outside where you got a bunch of public IP and you go into a 10 slash 8 for a DMZ, mm-hmm. most people don't do anything but NAT. Fair enough. You know, from the internet down, yeah, of course you have to NAT. Um, so I've been having to deal with open stuff and people going on about tenancy networks and all the rest of it. Um, um, can you do NAT? The, the micro-segmentation doesn't allow you to do NAT. I mean, you still need an edge to no. do that for yeah, you, right? Yeah, you still need an edge, absolutely. You still need your edge if you're going to be doing your translation into um, larger networks or anything like that. But remember, the firewall rules are not based on IP sets necessarily. They're based on... VM's characteristics. So if I give a VM a particular 172 address um, and the, v, you know, the next IP along within that wire happens to be a dev box and I was just on a prod box, you can set the rules so on that same wire there's no uh, communication between it. Or you can have communication over a particular port. When you're going beyond the NAT, 
if it's still within the DFW um, setup, as in past the edge and then into some other uh, tenant network or something similar, you can have it based still on host name or wire name or tag to communicate. But you, you kind of abstract yourself away from individual IP addresses and where they are in particular wire. And you're more looking at the policy based around the naming convention of tagging within your environment. And that's where the virtual wire comes into effect. Yeah. So now we have network virtual switches, VXLANs, well, actually now STN networks and the virtual wire. How do they all work together? Because now you were talking about something totally different. Most <laughs> people don't understand that at all. Yeah. I mean, they, uh, have trouble just, they have trouble trying to figure out why data is not going between the two boxes when they don't have the wire connected. Now we're talking about a virtual wire. Yeah, that's the network overlay when you're actually plugging that into either a different electrical router or an edge device. Um, and you're doing that over a, it's your overlay. Um, those overlays, um, they don't necessarily speak to each other unless they are a routing network. So in themselves as well, they are objects. They are tags. They are another thing that you can put in a dynamic group. So if you have a particular wire, and you want to do this some type of firewalling zonally between systems. And so if you've got a front-end network, you don't really care about the product name or anything like that. Ending on that front-end network can only speak to the back-end network on, you know, 1533 or whatever the article is. Um, you can just do it based on network as a security policy. So you pick your, essentially, a port group um, and say, this is... Ending within that is following this firewall policy. Ending on this other wire is following this firewall policy. So you can do it from that perspective and not just on individual VMs or tag VMs. Um, well, how, actually, now this actually gets really interesting. Mike, security on networking without IP? <laughs> I mean, I'm not the networking capacity. security guy, dude. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, you think about it, it's like I can have net, uh, IPless networks now. That makes security really interesting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, delivering without an actual IP address. What you're talking about is but, the policy of a virtual machine that just happens to have an IP address sitting on a particular wire can have a particular set of firewall policies that can actually speak to another uh, security group, which in itself can be dynamic. So it, you no longer care about the IP address. There is obviously IP addresses in there, and as long as they're routable, they'll be able to communicate together, assuming your firewall allows it. But you now look at these objects as tags. You know, this particular network is just another um, security group. Or the VM is, is part of a security group. So, you know, and, it's because, all based and on even a policy. cluster, you can do it on a cluster level as well. And even crazier, you can do it on, if you log into a Windows box, it can be, your firewall rules will suddenly open up based on your login. Explain how you, go, how you do that one, because that one's actually very, very <laughs> interesting. Um, now, the specifics of it, I'm not going to say I'm a master of it, but I do know that 
as part of your dynamic security groups, you can set up particular ones that if, you know, user Ross logs in, if you've attached a policy that says, well, Ross can go and speak to a particular repository that has particular, you know, installation files, then what's detected, I believe it's through VMware tools, it actually detects the user that's actually logged in. And Correct. it will say, Ross can, is logged in, right, open up firewall policy on that particular VM. Okay, now this and actually then, has some really interesting, this really has some interesting connotations for VMware View, is that this was always the missing piece. We never knew actually who logged in. The only person that knew, the only group that knew was View and the actual VM. So now if we know who logged in, user-based security is actually very viable. It's user and group um, security as well. Um, and it is Active Directory um, rather than, uh, now I could be wrong, but it's Active Directory rather than a Linux LDAP, um, if I'm right. Um, are your groups for basically detecting who's logged in onto what? Well, that makes it extremely powerful because now if I tie, if I'm using NSX and I tie, um, this would be really cool as I have the user in view, I have app volumes. And I can literally say, by user, you only have access to this set of apps. And then inside that app, I could say, you only have access to this, this repository or this back-end piece of data, database or something. Some of this stuff can get really creative very, very quickly. Yeah. It can also get very complicated on to why can't I have access to a particular port. And now you're looking at both, is the network itself firewalled by some type of rule? Is the VM? Is the cluster, is the data center within virtual center, and um, the data center object, is it the user? So you've got a whole host of possible places where a firewall rule may be introduced. Um, yeah, I can see I, the situ I can see the situation on, where I can see the situation where uh, you know Edward's the admin and he has access to everything, and I'm the user. I log in and. I can't get to this particular uh, file share that's on this particular network, right? And Edward logs in, and he's not the NSX admin. He's you know, just a regular desktop admin. He logs in, and because he's in the admin group, he has absolutely no problem getting in there. And then trying to debug why he has access versus I don't have access um, will, be, will be interesting. But, you know, that, oh, that happens every time you introduce new security stuff, you know. To be fair, if you're playing around with those type of policies, you'll be aware that you need to make these checks on the particular username as well. Um, so it, it does add in complication. It depends on how heavily regulated your company is on um, protection um, between systems. Um, I wouldn't particularly be looking at username-based firewalling unless it's, you know, I'm needing to install applications, but I don't want the end users at any access to those repos. You're going to have ACLs anyway on whatever file share you actually have um, those, you know, installation files on anyway. So it may be excessive security, but then again, it could also mean that an end user could have internet access and the other one doesn't. It could be a very right. nice way of saying, you know, the media group can do all their Facebooking to a particular, you know, go into the internet. But everyone else can't. They have to stay within exactly. the network. 
And what is the let's think about this one a little bit more, and that is is that what is how do you debug this stuff? Is does NSX have a tool as part of its suite to actually help debug all this? Because there is, what you described is extremely complex. It is. There's two sections within NSX. One is the um the security policy tab within uh, the NSX uh <coughs> pardon me. Within the website, you go to NSX, there's a security group and security policy section. And that's where you sell all this information. You can actually find out what VM is in what security policy uh, quite visually within the interface. You can just hover over and see, well, there's three VMs within that policy. Hover over, oh, so great. That's one step. The other bit is there's a firewall tab. So if you didn't want to do policy-based firewall and you want to do it old school and just do, here's my source, here's my destination, here's my port, here's the allow, um, here, TCP, UDP, ICMP, whatever. You can do that. But when the security policies are created and VMs are dynamically you know, spun up and suddenly in these particular groups, the firewall section within NSX will grow out new rules. So you go in and you'll go into that and you'll see all the different policies being kind of like major categories, for want of a better word. You expand the categories and then you'll see the actual object groups of source and destination, etc. And at the top of that particular section, the firewall section, you can actually do a filter. And you can say, on this VM, what can I actually access? Tell me all the firewall rules attached to this particular VM or this particular user um, as part of a stack. And you'll pretty much find any particular any any rule very quickly or where your deny rule is. Um, or if you haven't remembered to open up access to a particular IP set beyond the NSX environment. So there is a, a way of searching through it. But unfortunately, the only way I've seen it so far is through the web GUI. But I believe there's, um, having done uh, some of the VCIX exam, um, there is a lot of API stuff that you can do there as well. So maybe um, if someone's played with the API, you could actually do a call to say, does this user have access to this particular VM from this source destination or from the source VM? So there is ways of doing that. Just like you would with uh, normal firewalling tools on a Cisco ASA or something like that. You can actually go and find out what rules are actually applied and what you can do from A to B. Very interesting. To be fair, NSX as a web interface, I personally think it's still in its bit of an infancy. It's the web interface. It's slow. It's clunky. Um, but it's all there that you actually essentially need. Um, there are some negatives. Um, when you need to go and have a look at an IP set, so when I say IP set, that's an IP address outside the particular environment where you can't you know, define it as a policy. You create an IP set in one particular sub-sub-sub-tab of the interface. And then you have to create a security group which has a single membership of that particular IP set. And then at that point, you can use that security group as a source of destination as part of the policy. And so you're going to uh, all you, these you different levels. In, you, but you've got, you got to do that in VCNS today. You've got to create your IP sets before you can actually include them inside your firewalls. But and your security group. So this is not unknown of. Yeah. So you can use the IP set straight away as opposed to having to create this 
further abstraction layer, which literally has a single object as a container, which is an IP set, and then use as a policy. And I did sit down with one of the product managers, and I, I mentioned, you know, showed them graphically. You know, I had to create. I think I had, you know, probably about eight real security groups, and then these thirty or forty um, groups that were just literally with an IP set that was also created elsewhere. So why couldn't I just select the IP set directly? Why did I have to create a security group with an IP set in it as a sole entity? Um, it, so, it, 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 it was clunky, but you know it's not unusable. It's just a step that's a little bit needless. But I can understand why they did it. It was a fairly you know, broad-stroke approach. So VMware's claims, I mean, a lot of reasons why NSX is not available generically to everybody is that VMware feels that you need to know a lot more about networking before you can actually touch this thing. From a security perspective, do you need to know a lot more about security to touch it? Um, as a basic vSphere admin, um, and maybe I'm not doing people justice here, as a basic vSphere admin, think about what you normally would do. You're given particular VLANs, you have particular network segments, you have particular um, VMs pulling up on particular storage, whatever. You're while you're almost like a center of excellence of having this converged technology, you may not have the appreciation about what a VLAN really is in the back end. You know, the fact that you do not want to be trunking 20 or 30 VLANs up to a particular port for network stability from a firewall perspective, you know, you may not know how to operate a, a major firewall appliance or anything like that. You may not have the interest or exposure to it because you've always been a virtualization guy or a server guy. Um, you do now have to get a little bit more knowledge about it from a networking point of view. And frankly, something with a CCNA level piece of knowledge is probably enough, easily enough, for you to really get the absolute appreciation of what you're trying to do within NSX. Um, and when I say security, I'm talking around the firewalling and source destination to different types of uh, protocol that could be used. Um, you know, if you've never worked with a firewall before, you know, don't launch it to NSX and start assuming you know how to use a firewall. And just because it's there, it, you know, as you pointed out, said deny, and then suddenly everything just goes down. Um, there's a particular topology that you're meant to follow, where if you look at the design guide, you'll have a management cluster, then you'll have an edge cluster, and then you'll have all your compute, compute clusters. And the reason it's broken out like that is you don't traditionally put DFW on your management because your management will hold your controllers for NSX. And the last thing you want is there to be some type of hiccup, some type of silly policy made or something or other that suddenly you set it and then your management layer, all your ports suddenly have deny all. How do you recover from that? It's a horrible, horrible situation. So it's having a value... I think the idea is you go and do the course. That should give you enough appreciation about the perils and you know the positives of what NSX can do for you. And then I think they give you the software now um, as part of finishing your course, so you can then go and play with it. And that's the way you get your hands on it from a you know a testing point of view within your own lab. Um, it sounds like there's a lot of room for some some smart consultants out there to actually do, do implementations, but also to write some tools to aid in debugging. Because yeah. if you do run into the situation where everything's turned off 
and you can turn it back on, it may not actually be right. Absolutely, and you you almost have to like start doing pen testing on the um. Well, not sorry. You, you sometimes security scanning on the environment every so often to make sure there hasn't been someone went in and did something to win any any rule, and then suddenly it might be I want in the access for this particular group, but because the actual security groups can be actually um, layered within each other, so a security group can be a member of another security group. And you've just suddenly opened up access that you shouldn't have opened up to. So you need to have the, how can I say, you need to be particular about when you're setting these rules and these policies and know how to uh, interact with all the other different security groups and if there's any nested groups. Hey, Mike, you dealt with governance before. Do you know any tool that would actually help us with this right now? Is this really what they we're talking about, is, is governance of your of your in the of the policy, but you're talking about I a don't, policy. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if. I don't know if those tools are mature enough yet. So how do you? know, you, I how mean, would you the, go about the the, to, the tools that are providing the the tools that are providing the data, uh, like you know, like NSX for example, um, have any number of different ways to pull out that data to then match to governance. It would then be on the onus of the the GRC tool to write to that API to pull out the, the information, and I just don't know if there's enough customers asking for that yet. Well, if you can if you can shoot, if you've got enough rope to hang yourself, and that's what it sounds like you do have with with NSX, and actually it sounds like you have that with just about any SDN product out there. You get enough rope to really hang yourself. I mean, there's a number of things. There's a number of bad things you can do. You can deny access to management. You can actually hairpin things 16 times and never really notice it, so that you're actually sure. going in and out, in and out, in and out, and blowing away your bandwidth. Uh, this can happen. I mean, SDN allows this without another thought. It sounds like there needs to be a, a new set of governance tools that, or a testing tools that allow you to really know at the nuts and bolts what the true path of your data is. So that you can optimize that path, it, it's not, it, because let's say I but put is that in a, a GRC wall, story. I think it's. I think it may end up being a GRC story. Because yeah, I don't think it's. A, I don't think it's a GRC story today. That's more of an operational so. story. I agree, but I think that with the complexities, you can really impact availability by oh, there's no rerouting traffic six ways a Sunday. There's no, there's no doubt that uh, um, you can, you can make the complication level so complicated that then you're wondering why things are either not working or they're working extremely slow. Um, but you know, is is that a GRC tool to figure that optimization out? I don't, I don't see that. I see a GRC tool to say. Uh, Mike Foley has access to the following things, and I verified that uh, on the network, and I verified that using NSX APIs. That's different than is Mike Foley making 17 hops in order to get to the stuff that he needs? That's an operational thing. That's my opinion, anyway. Well, I agree with you, right? but if I'm making 17 hops, you know, all the stuff about SDN has nothing to do with the hardware. I could be making 17 hops before I even hit NSX. 
but I could be making another 20 as it goes in and out to go from, I mean, if I really want to plug in most traditional security, and this is really where it becomes, I think, where we need to start thinking about where traditional security really fits and whether or not it does anymore, is because, let's say I do do traditional security. I have an IDS or an IPS, so I have to route the traffic in, it comes into the virtual environment, and then I hairpin it out to my IPS, big iron. And then it goes into a load, uh, then it goes back into the virtual environment. Oh, gotta go to that big, big iron load balancer, so I hairpin it back out to the load balancer. And then it comes back in, and it's like, okay, now I gotta hit the WAF. Okay, that's a big iron piece of WAF. I don't wanna lose that investment, so I hairpin back to it. I mean, I can hairpin a dozen times before I get to like where I really need to be. Where up until now, up until where SDN was actually being used, most people were saying, move all that stuff into the virtual environment so you don't hairpin, it's all in line right there. And NetX doesn't do me any good there either because it actually, some of the NetX components are in line, but some of them are just nothing more than a fancy form of a hairpin. <laughs> I just don't know if the market's mature enough yet. There was I one think product, we were going to talk about something like that later. There was, there was one product that um, I came across at VMworld um, back in Barcelona last uh, October, and there was a group called Tuffin, um, and they were integrating Spell with NetX. I think it was T-U-F-I-N, um, or and maybe I'll I'll try and get the information for you, maybe put as a appendix to your podcast. Um, but they were specializing in a lot of firewall automation, not just NSX, but all the traditional firewall vendors. And they do change control as well uh, within that. And the, allegedly, no, I haven't had my hands on the product fully, um, they could actually take in all your firewall rules and basically almost give you a diagrammatic map of your uh, network from your firewall in real set. And basically you then say, well, this particular firewall object needs to be able to go and speak to this other firewall object. It will then go and create a set of commands for actually editing whatever firewalls you've got in your environment. If you've got multiple layers of them, it will go and do this from an automated point of view, create the CLI commands, and then have it proposed for a manager to then go and approve to the point there'd be an automatic workflow. Um, it's something to look at, um, and allegedly they were doing that with NSX. I don't know how, if that was NSX 6.0 or 6.1, um, but they were mentioning it, and that's what they were um, there at VMworld talking to us about. And what's the difference between 6.0 and 6.1? Is there any major differences? Um, not really. You're to, to be honest, 6.0 was uh, a dramatic difference from a firewall perspective from the regular NSX multi-hypervisor, the original NICERO, because one was ACL and the NSX-V product was a stateful firewall. Um, but what you are looking at is stuff like ECMP was one of the big things that came in. Um, they actually went also away from all the NICERO upgrading controllers, which was a manual procedure almost like click and upgrade and made life a lot easier to actually um, look after. Um, from a firewall perspective, 
I don't. I never really played with the six five zero, so I can't really comment on that one. But um, again, with most things, you have to validate it against a particular version and time. I think NSX six point one was only out about a month, month and a half. So hopefully, they have gone to the point that it's definitely six point one capable. So those going to be playing with NSX, you feel need to know a lot more about networking and security before they start playing around with those bits. I think it's also within the product itself. Um, you need to basically segment who has access to what features within the NSX uh, GUI. Um, especially around edge devices, um, distributed logical routers, um, and basically being able to put in static routes, putting an OSPF uh, configuration, all the rest of it. It is very, very easy to go and advertise out a static route out to the main LAN, which then may start causing um, your traffic to start going around in circles throughout your network, if you, especially when you're doing OSPF peering. Um, if I have a, you know, have, I've said we're looking at Greenfield versus the native environment. Greenfield environment obviously has its own IP segment um, that's different from the original environment. But if I go and say, you know, I let the devs go and de deploy out an app and suddenly they're going to say, oh, well, you know, in production it's a particular IP range, or should we use the same IP range within this environment? You can create that IP range. You can attach it onto a dispute logical router. If it's set up for OSPF in a non-safe way, it will go and start advertising out that route out onto the main LAN. So now you've got two competing areas of your LAN saying, hello, I've got the IP segment. Um, and of course, it doesn't. So you do need to start looking at putting in IP pre prefix lists. So you can say that a particular supernet is looked after by your NSX environment. And if you then create behind that particular network, networks that exist back in your native environment, you're probably going to damage your NSX environment because you can't actually root out to your native, but at least it's contained. So my advice would be the network side, you don't give that just to a, a guy who doesn't know much about networking. The guy who would go, give me a few VLANs, give me a couple of networks, whatever, doesn't know the main things about networking, routing, uh, peering, um, distribution of networks, etc. Absolutely keep them away from it. Give that to your network guys or skill up your VMware guys to actually know all about networking to a point that they aren't dangerous. Um, okay. So that's one permission set that you need to really look at setting up within NSX itself. And then from a firearm point of view, you need to do a similar thing. Um, give the people who know about firewalling and have appreciation of what particular security groups are nested and the effect that a particular rule will have. Um, get, you know, segment that type of role to someone else or train up your VMware guys to know that particular uh, capability. I don't think, you know, these network, you know, network guys and security guys, they won't know particularly how to administrate a VMware-based environment as well. You know, you wouldn't give your network guys, oh, go spin up a lot of VMs, create up a couple of storage um, data stores, go play with it that way. You wouldn't, you know, they are different disciplines. It doesn't mean that you can't appreciate all disciplines as a single person, but usually there's a lot of siloed skill sets within a company. Um, 
So you do have to kind of like almost step back and go, I'm a VMware guy, I'm a network guy, um, I'm a security guy, and try and segment yeah. the permission sets within the product. So, Mike, that just, I mean, all we're doing is creating more creating more of those silos instead of trying to bring everybody together. Do you think NSX is going to bring people together? I, I, so I have a, uh, I have a different take on that. So the um these there's going to be the silos. There's going to be experts of the network experts, cylinders storage experts. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't hear what you said. I cylinders said cylinders of, of ex cylinders, cylinders of excellence, not silos. Yeah. I'll never forget uh, when I when I started working at VMware uh, years ago, and I was going to these customers. Uh, we suggested that they set up a VMware center of excellence within the organization, right? And we didn't call it VMware; we said virtualization. And the idea was you you have that storage team, the network team, the firewall team, and they're all trying to figure out how this virtualization stuff's going to take over their lives, right? Well, it it didn't take over their lives, we needed more of their help, and we figured out how to get them to work in the new virtual environment instead of just deploying physical things. Now with cloud and automation, we still need those smart people to, to um, give us their intellectual property out of their head, you know, their methods, but it's, it's not them doing it anymore. They all have their own sets of scripts usually that they're running. Now we need to take those scripts from those smart people and put them back into the, the cloud environment, right? and make the cloud do what they want. And so that's where I was talking about Congress and policy. Um, that's a step in that direction is the, the first thing to do is to um, state the intent that you're trying to achieve and have uh, the system sort of audit itself. And the network guys and the firewall guys now, they all need to figure out how to take that smart stuff that they usually do with their hands and put it into the computer to program that. And so that's kind of the next generation. Having the... Uh, the tools automated and NSX automation and software delivery of these virtual services enables them to now put software around intent and policy management instead of having to manually go to every system and configure it manually and individually. Okay, I'll give you that. I'm not saying it's something you can do today, but I think it's just a stepping stone in that direction. All right, I'll give you that. So we're at the top of the hour, well, top of the half hour here. Um, last thoughts? Mike, why don't you go first? Um, the, the, the environments are very, very complex, and it really pays uh, to uh, try and get a handle on understanding the capabilities. Um, you know, we'll go back to what, what Edward and I have been saying for years. Uh, doing it the way you've always done it is not going to work. Uh, embrace change, and you'll, you'll probably end up reaping the, the ROI rewards. But change is scary, Mike. Change is good. I would say change is good. You can, I mean, I'm going to go and, and I'll let you go, you and even and um, Roscoe last here. Is I think that given NSX is here and VCNS is going away, more and more people are going to start using SDN. And when more and more people start using SDN, they actually have to form those groups that have a mixture of virtualization 
security and networking together. As well as if you're talking about various iSCSI and networking forms of storage, the networking the storage guys as well. If you have fiber channel, no one that's not going to make a difference. When you start talking about putting all that together and on a software-defined network, however you define it, where you no longer need IP to actually have things communicate to each other, except for traditional ways, you're going to have to rethink how you do everything. You're going to have to rethink security. You're going to have to rethink networking. But you mm -hmm. cannot forget the physical. The physical is a big part of this. You're not getting rid of it. I can I still can't have two physical boxes talk to each other unless there's a wire, physical wire between them somehow. So you know, this isn't going to solve that problem yet. But I think we need to start. You need to start planning a lot better than people have been. I think you need to start understanding. Yeah, this, I mean, we don't want to. This, this really brings in the need for architecting your environment. Absolutely. You don't want to architect an environment that needs a hundred stuff. You can't architect an environment with a hundred thousand rules and expect it to work. We're there now and people and firewalls are having problems. So we don't want to get into that same boat. We need to seriously do some serious architecture first. And without that, I think you're gonna be blowing things up left, right, and center. I mean, it, it, architecture could be, for some people, just writing on the back of a napkin. Just do something. Go to an Italian restaurant, have a nice meal, write out your thoughts. Seems that's where the best thinking goes, is Italian restaurants or over um, whiskey, but one of the two. But what, why are we reinventing the wheel with custom ad hoc architectures? Aren't there best practices and reference architectures we should use as a starting point? I own a reference architecture and I maintain it. So yeah, there are reference architectures, but when you start talking about, there are no reference designs. And I think that's really the key. There are reference architectures where you talk about how the generic terms of how you're gonna get from point A to B from a networking perspective. How are you gonna pull in storage, where you should be pulling it in. It doesn't tell you what storage to pull in. You're not plugging in products at that point. That's your design. You take a reference architecture and then you plug in, a, you take a, you design around that architecture. I think what we're talking about, there are custom designs. There are not. Reference architectures are great to work from, but you're gonna end up with a custom design to fit your needs and your applications. That's when you start plugging in the product suite, stuff you may already own and stuff well, you may not. Fair enough. I, I guess what I'm trying to, to understand uh, about your suggestion uh, is that, that the architecture is changing. Uh, we, these building blocks that we used to use for architecture used to be, I need a firewall and a switch and a router. You know? But now the building blocks are, I'm going to have my NSX over here and I'm going to use Amazon over there, you know, and my HR system, my source of record for authentication is over here. And there's be a billing yeah, database. Yeah, that's, that's a design. You're mentioning products again. An architecture has no mention of products. I have a cloud over there. I have a, an identity store over here. It may be I could bring it into a particular group and say that's a, my HR identity store yeah, for yeah, the yeah. entire. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out what you're I'm not plugging about. in product. I'm, plug, I'm plugging in a design, an architecture that says this is how I envision my environment looking. 
Okay, so and you're talking about just the high-level building blocks, right? Identity management, data source, you know, web front end, things like that. Yeah, you got to think about hybrid cloud all the way when you start talking about NSX. All right. I'm all then that, or, that's fine to put on a napkin in, a, in an Italian restaurant after a big meal. Uh, and actually, an architect and a, a start of a design is as well. It's like, oh, and here is our we have this current product. We over here we have this current product. Is it? Is, and then you got to decide. Will and your design's there to tell you will those products actually work, and what else do I need to make them work? That's where the design comes. That's up. another. Uh, kind of new thing, maybe it's not new, but to me it seems like it's new, is a lot of times we used to look at application architecture and kind of start from a clean slate with that napkin you're talking about or just go to a whiteboard. But it's not like that anymore today, is it? We have to merge the new and with the old and all these systems are talking to each other. So you've got to take into account the legacy environment as well. I've never once done an architecture where, or a design where I didn't include the legacy environment because... People spend big money on IDSs and IPSs and firewalls. They still want to use their physical appliances because they got a lot of money invested in them. Still got to consider how they're used. In some cases, you could use like the big iron by extending it into the virtual environment. And then and that's one of the extension as the way to do it. I would think that's a big reason to justify NSX is because a lot of companies have a huge investment in VMware already, right? Yeah. So, Ross, what are your last thoughts? Where should we go um, from here? I think we have to take um, the entire purpose of SDN. Um, you have to examine, do you need it? Do you have an environment that actually changes so frequently that you want to be able to automate the control of it? Now, you could automate your firewalls, uh, as is. A lot of them have RESTful APIs, and you can do it that way. Or you can do integrated, which is like the NSX way. There's a bunch of other um, SDN providers out there. Um, you've got, uh, just <coughs> off the top of my head, you've got uh, Con uh, Juniper Contrail, you've got um, Nuage, PlumGrid, a few others out there as well. A few of them are fair, you know, a distance down the line. Some of them are maybe startup type operations. But the big news is, SDN is, is coming onto the map for all of us. If we go back 10 years, virtualization was something that you'd probably be maybe dev and test, pre-prod maybe. You'd be very, very you know, gutsy to start talking about doing stuff in production. But now that it's, you know, of course, you're going to virtualize your estate. Absolutely, of course. VMware, having bought MySera and brought NSX into the fold, I believe, honestly, this is the what we're seeing is maybe not 10 years ago, but maybe five, six years ago, where you were starting to genuinely look at productionizing this type of capability. And it's not going to go away. It's going to start becoming a normal piece of behavior that has to be looked at. You're going to have to make sure that you've got your, not just your, you know, 5,000 foot view of what you want SDN to do, but you're also going to have to bake it heavily into your entire operation to the point that a lot of companies out there are looking at automating out their deployments of their applications in maybe a CD type pipeline. Um, and this is where it starts becoming very beneficial, where it's just automating firewall provision. That's the first big thing. What's, can you, I, can you, I have, 
I'm looking for a reference to that. Is what's this ABCD? I hadn't heard that before. It's, uh, it's like uh, continuous delivery and continuous integration. So this is basically where you take an application and you roll it through a pipeline where you've got your early quality phases, your integration phases into a larger environment, test environment. You've got a performance phase, poss possibly, and then you roll it out into production. So it's a staged rollout of an application into is a this, production setup. Is this the concept where um, you're able to have a similar development environment and test environment uh, to kind of match what we would have in production instead of having separate silos that don't match? They now kind of can Absolutely. be similar? Absolutely. What you should be able to do is uh, rinse, wash, repeat. Um, whatever you need for production, that should be literally a templated thing and just call it dev or call it you know, performance or call it whatever. And it just means that at an earlier phase when you need to introduce new firewall rules um, to go between particular applications, you've caught it in your earliest phase. It's not suddenly you know, all of dev is open to chat to each other and then you go to production, ah, we have an issue. You're getting the opportunity to actually define your firewall rules at an earlier stage within your environment and then progress it through and learn from that. It becomes no different than just changing a value in a, you know, in a Java config file. It's just another element of a software-defined data center. That's my opinion, anyway. <laughs> no, that actually makes sense. I mean, you, I, this stuff is way, getting way too complex way too soon. Well, it's not way too soon, but it's getting very complex very quickly for some people. And for other people, we've been dealing with it day in and day out for years. So it's not, it, this is just evolutionary. But not everybody's at that point. It is a, a changing so, landscape. It, it definitely is. With it, the approach that's been made to automating the deployment of applications, this entire manual procedures that all companies know about. Why is it manual? If it's logical and it's methodical, you can automate it, and you're going to be automating your network as well. Okay. Well, everybody, this has been another version of the Virtualization Security Podcast, and Cloud, Cloud Security Podcast, I should say. Ross, thank you for joining us. It's been very interesting. No bother. Thanks for the invite.